Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Fluently Forward. This episode has been on my mind, grapes, for years, probably. I have always wanted to do an episode digging in to the placebo effect and manifestation. Ever since I was a kid and I found out about the placebo effect, I would walk around just thinking, how are we all not talking about this more? Somebody can take a pill, a sugar pill, something that you know won't affect them at all, but because they think that it's going to help them and make them feel better, it does. Like that is a staggering fact to me. We can literally think ourselves sick. There have been examples of this. And then we can also think ourselves better. And I have just wondered, there has to be some government department out there also wondering the same things. And, you know, they also have funding to answer some of these questions that I have. But I've always just been so astounded by that. And I've always wondered, why aren't we talking about this more? Let's all think ourselves better. Do affirmations actually work? Does manifestation work? Is there a reason why so many people shit on vision boards and power posing and they act like it's trivial, even though the placebo effect exists and it proves to us that our thoughts are powerful and they can change physical things in our body? Now, in a fun little turn, we are having a listener of Fluently Forward on to be our expert for this episode. So she will be coming on in a bit, Ryan Lynn Brown, Dr. Ryan Lynn Brown. She reached out to me and we were chatting over email about a bunch of different interests we had. We both went to Rice. So shout out to any Rice University owls listening to this. And I'm so excited to have her on. She just gave the best most knowledgeable takes. She was referencing all these different studies and surgeries. Yes, the placebo effect has even been used in surgeries before where someone will go under and they'll be like, oh, we're operating on your knee, but they actually don't do anything to the knee that they said they were going to do. And patients after the surgery go, oh my God, my knee feels so much better. What? Like we're going to be talking about all of it. It's so cool. So yes, typically... We are the floozies, the fluently forward floozies. But back when I was thinking of names to call listeners or, you know, something that we could refer to ourselves as, somebody suggested the forward thinkers, right? Fluently forward thinkers. So for some episodes, we're floozies. And for other episodes, we're forward thinkers. So we're going to get a little bit highbrow today. But don't worry, it is me leading the episode. So we kind of stick to the low middle ground as well. So real quick, before I introduce Ryan here and she comes on, let's just do a little 101 for anyone who maybe has a different for you page than me. If you're wondering, what is the law of attraction? What is manifestation? The hell does this have to do with the placebo effect that I learned about in science? So the law of attraction is kind of the umbrella terminology for manifestation, affirmations, vision boarding techniques. And the law of attraction basically describes the ability to attract what we're focusing on into our lives. It's this idea that either positive or negative thoughts can bring positive or negative experiences into actual reality in your own life. So it kind of goes off of this belief and this philosophy that we are all made up of energy and energy attracts energy. So your thoughts and your energetic thoughts can attract good or bad based on what you're thinking about, focusing on, really honing in on. 
And the concept of kind of you give what you get, what you look for, you find more of it, that's been around for a long time. Uh, but it was less than 200 years ago that the law of attraction was given its name. And it was one of these famous teachings of the 19th century New Thought movement. So back, it was first described in the 1860s, 1870s, but it kind of went through a, a renaissance, if you will, thanks to the 2006 movie, The Secret, and different celebrities talking about this, which we will get into in a little bit as well. So it kind of centers on optimism, right? If you believe it, it can come true. And I think that's beautiful. And I also sometimes get a little bit paranoid and terrified of it. So let me know if this has happened to you. I think I have heard other people, you know, reference this. So I don't think I'm entirely alone in it. But sometimes I steer a little bit too much into the skid of law of attraction, where, for example, yes, my positive thoughts can bring positive things, but then if I have an intrusive thought or I'm having a negative day, I'll then also shame and guilt myself for thinking those negative things because I'll go, damn it, girl, law of attraction, you're going to bring that negativity into your life. So if I'm nervous before a date, I'll go, oh my God, no, 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 you have to think positive things because if you think it's going to go poorly, then it will go poorly. Or if I miss my ex and I'm like, oh my God, I'll never be happy with anyone else. Everyone thinks that after a breakup, but then I'll kind of spank myself mentally for thinking that because I'll go, oh my God, you're thinking it, so then it will come true. It's kind of similar to me. Did anyone else ever police their own thoughts in their diary as a kid, where basically you weren't sure if maybe your sister would read your diary. So you would say, I don't know, like, I'm mad at Megan for stealing my clothes, but I still love her and she's perfectly fine. And I know that I'll get over it tomorrow, even though at the time you want to go, damn it, Megan, you spilled spaghetti sauce on my t-shirt. So sometimes I get a little bit worried about diving too far into law of attraction because when you self-censor your own thoughts in your brain, that means that you have nowhere on earth to just think freely what you're actually authentically thinking and feeling in that moment, which I think is kind of dangerous. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, there's a lot of people who give manifestation shit because I think they don't understand it. They, they straw man argument it and they boil it down and they basically say, oh, manifestation, you just think that you're going to have a million dollars and then you will. That's, you know, that's stupid. That's not going to work. And yeah, of course that isn't going to work. That's not what manifestation is. Basically, it's that you are thinking these thoughts, the desired outcomes of your life. And by thinking it so much, you then subconsciously and consciously take steps in your life to achieve those goals that you set out for yourself. And I think about this, for example, for vision boards. I have this huge board in my room and I constantly use it as my vision board for magazine clippings. And when great things from that board happen and come true, I take them down and then I put up what I want the next goal to be. And they say that you're supposed to use a vision board for three to four months out in your life. And I have to say, I mean, I truly believe that's the reason why I have this podcast today. If you ever look through my old Instagram stories, you'll probably see the vision board in my apartment. And in moments of time, back in the day, I had get a podcast sponsor on the board. It happened. I took it off. You know, also other stuff was working behind the scenes, but still. And I just think this, if somebody believes that a vision board doesn't work and they think it's all foo-foo fluffy stuff, okay, well, what if you made a vision board of famine, death, colorectal cancer, 
and bankruptcy and you put that up on your wall and you looked at it every day, you probably wouldn't want that up there. Well, why not? I thought it was all flu-flu and it wouldn't mean anything. You know, so I, I, I always find that as an interesting exercise when people say they don't believe in manifestation or if somebody says, oh, I don't believe in affirmations. Okay, well, if you don't believe them, how about you stand up every day and look in the mirror and tell yourself that you're a piece of shit and you're unworthy and then do that every day if you don't believe in it. People won't because they know that that would lead to a negative result. So I don't know. I personally, I'm a huge believer in all of this stuff and I love, love, love it. Other people obviously feel different ways. Head over to Instagram. We're going to be talking about it this week. Let me know what you think. And let's talk about celebrities who do believe in it. Number one, Jim Carrey. What a guy. But he's got this crazy story about manifestation where he said, I wrote myself a check for $10 million for acting services rendered, and I dated it for Thanksgiving 1995. And just before Thanksgiving 1995, I found out that I was getting the role for Dumb and Dumber and I was going to make exactly $10 million, which is so awesome. We have celebrities like Tom Holland who manifested his role in Spider-Man and also dating Zendaya. Now, I don't know if he manifested with a vision board, but in previous interviews, he had talked about wanting both of those things. Oprah Winfrey, she's huge on vision boards. Drake set his desktop background to be LA so that way he could visualize it every day moving to LA from Canada. Ariana Grande is big into this and in her song Pete Davidson, she has the lyric, I thought you I thought you into my life, look at my mind, basically saying I manifested you. And Lady Gaga uh, used to practice affirmations all of the time that she would be famous. So let me know if you're ever interested in more of this content. We can talk about cool ways to do. I like having vision boards or affirmations as my phone screensaver. And I just have basically an entire wall in my <laughs> apartment dedicated to vision boarding because I just think it's so magical and so fun. So that was a little floozy edition. We're now going to forward think our way into this. I am so excited to introduce you to Dr. Ryan Lynn Brown, and we are going to talk about the placebo effect and how thinking positive and negative thoughts can affect your health, both mental and physical. So without further ado, here is our interview. All right. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Fluently Forward podcast. Today we have Ryan Brown, PhD with us. So technically, Dr. Brown, welcome to the podcast and uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and the work that you do. Thanks so much, Shannon. I am uh, very happy to be a floozy and uh, loyal listener and happy to be here today. I So I do a lot of stress and health work, thinking a lot about how stress affects our health, but especially like social stress and how our close relationships can help or hurt us. And all of that sort of gushy, uh, squishy stuff that's really hard to measure and try to make that a little bit easier to measure and understand how we can actually use it to improve our health and aging long term. Mm, that's such a, which, by the way, is such a field to be in right now because everyone's always concerned about their health and everyone is very concerned about aging too, both in terms of beauty, but also all those Silicon Valley folks who are trying to like use blood to age backwards. So you must be excited to be in a field that is like booming right now. Absolutely. There's a lot of incredible work. I was just at an aging conference last week that I think 
had uh, like 750 people at it just in the Bay Area who were like focused on addressing questions of aging and, you know, less on the like, let's live longer and more on the let's live happier, healthier lives longer or happier, healthier lives, you know, to the length that we sort of expect. So less of the let's live to be 150 and more of the let's get let's try to limit these chronic illnesses that make it a lot harder both on the individual going through them and also on potentially caregivers as well. And what I love too is not like let's live at our most fuckable because when most people talk about aging, at least in like beauty and makeup, reverse signs of aging, it's never for a happier, healthier life. It's always just to look like a young little baby. If you had to guess what age would you say people of our generation are going to be living until? Oh, great question. I mean, we're already getting so far, we're just getting so far advanced. So, I mean, I, I would say that our, our groups are easily going to be hitting that like 80, 85 number. And when we're thinking about how we can even extend that further, I think that we're going to see, you know, those records just be shattered in terms of like the longest living people. I think we'll start seeing more and more sort of those outliers being pushed further up, but it'll be really interesting also to see. I mean, I think this is sort of the broader question of like, what is that upper limit of where we start seeing a drop off of people? You know, we can't get past a certain age, even with all of these medical improvements, technological improvements and better understanding of like the aging process. Yeah. It's so great. Like I'm not smart enough for it, but if I was, I would totally want to dive into this because like who isn't interested in birth and life and death and getting older? So we have you on today as an expert to help us kind of dive into this concept of the placebo effect because I sit around and I have always wondered why are we not talking about the placebo effect more? This idea that you can kind of think yourself better or that your thoughts can manipulate physical, you know, problems, symptoms within your body. So my first question for you is all about this idea of stress making us sick. Now, typically when people think about this idea of the placebo effect, they go, okay, there's an experiment. One person takes a pill, it's a sugar pill, but they said you're going to get better and then you do end up getting better, which by the way, when people say that, how do you imagine the pill to look? Because I always imagine it as a pink little pill like the size of a birth control pill. I was going to say birth control pill. Absolutely. That's like the most foundational type of pill I've ever thought about. So that's where my mind would go. (laughs) Yeah. So I imagine everybody takes this like sparkly pink or not super sparkly, but like a pink pill and then they're better. But the opposite is also true because placebo effect can be used to make you better, but can it also be used to make you worse? We talk a lot about how stress is horrible for your, you know, immune system, for keeping you healthy. If you stress, you can think yourself sick, you can cause ulcers, all of that. So is this true? Does stress affect our health? And in what way, like how sick can we make ourselves from stress? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a really wide variety of ways that we can make ourselves sick through stress and also through like our mindsets of our mindsets that we face that stress with, right? Because stress researchers get really picky about how we're measuring and thinking about stress. So, you know, you can measure like objective stressors that happen to people. And a lot of times- Oh, I've done tests like that, by the way. And I remember one of the tests, they said that, you know, they have numbers assigned to life Mm -hmm. events and moving was actually like one of the top 10 biggest stressors, like moving to a different apartment. 
Yeah, and those are so interesting too because that's where you start to see a lot of the social element of stress coming out and how much our, like whenever we have to reorganize our social world, how disruptive that is to us. So I, I really mm-hmm. like those kinds of checklists. So the, the work I did in grad school was really focused on the death of a spouse and the increased risk of death and also other diseases after you experience the death of your spouse. So really trying to understand what that sort of interpersonal loss, massive social social reorganization, um, how that's getting under the skin to affect people's health. But we, we also think a lot more about people's perceived stress. And that's kind of the one thing I wanted to like advocate for here is that, uh, you know, we can look at objective stressors and people will experience them or not experience them, but you don't get much variability from looking at that. But when you look at how people respond and say how stressful that objective stressor was for them, like immediately after, a few months later, that's where you start getting such wide variety of responses. Because, you know, some people can take whatever that stressor is and sort of put it away, put it in the back of their mind, not really need to think about it the next time. But some people also will experience a lot of repetitive thought. So like we'll worry about the future or ruminate about the past, right? And just try to reenact those moments. And it's that those ways that we prolong the experience of a stressor that can really track with more objective markers of health too when we start looking at sort of immune, autonomic, and endocrine markers of stress responses. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Like, and it's twofold, right? Like one example, let's say somebody's scared of a dog. Two people could be walking down the sidewalk. One person sees a dog, they're incredibly stressed. The other person sees a dog and they're totally cheerful. So even that varies. And you're completely right about the individual. We've all had that one friend who can work themselves into a tizzy over the smallest thing. And then another friend where they call you, oh yeah, I got into a car crash, whatever. You're like, oh my God, like, how are you doing that? And then there's people like, I don't know if you relate to this. I am a huge overthinker. Like if I go to bed early, I'm so excited and my brain goes great. We've got like an extra hour to ruminate on stuff. So knowing that stress is detrimental towards us, what have you heard of that helps people who deal with stress? Like I take magnesium because people say that helps for women, Mm -hmm. but like all of these suggestions, working out, eating better, are there actual clinical things you can do to offset all of these negative effects of stressing. Yeah, absolutely. I think a, a main um, sort of distinction is the type of stressor. So if it's something really ob- like objectively traumatic, objectively horrible in your environment, right? Like the best option is to get out of that environment. So there are types of stressors that, you know, the best option is just to remove that stressor from your life if Dump at all him. possible. <laughs> yeah, get rid of it, you know, uh, leave, leave that job, like find people who don't exploit you, those sorts of things. Um, yeah. But then when you're facing, you know, if whether it's sort of a more like chronic, you, you're just someone who tends to worry, which, you know, I am. So in that case, I think finding ways to disrupt those repetitive thought processes, especially is really helpful. I love going on like walks, exercise, those sorts of things, right? A lot of the intervention focused efforts are things like mindfulness, exercise, yoga. And I, I appreciate those for what they can give to people. But I also think that I hope we continue to push beyond them to things that are easier to impact more people. Um, I think a lot of these interventions are just limited by the populations that we can really 
bring them to and implement for people. So, you know, the most helpful thing we might be able to do for people is give them resources to cope with that because a lot of our stress response depends on if we can appraise a situation and say, I have the resources to cope with this stressor. It's not going to be as stressful as if you do not have the resources. So whenever we can provide objective resources for people, I'm fully on board with that. And for me personally, things like exercise and yoga and just like mindful movement have been really helpful Mm. for navigating those more stressful times. And you're so right about the thoughts too. I read this book called um, Feeling Good by David Someone back when I was going through like a really rough time with depression and they list out all of these cognitive distortions that your brain does. So all all or nothing thinking, black and white, pretending like you're predicting the future. And I'll do this all the time without even realizing it. Someone bumps into me in the street and immediately my brain goes, they don't like you. What the hell? It's like, they don't even know me. But it's one of those like mind reading, predictive cognitive distortions you do. And the entire book was talking about how we think that our feelings influence our thoughts, but our thoughts happen within a millisecond and they actually determine our feelings. So if you can do, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and work through those different thoughts, you can feel better. Now, you know, the placebo effect and what our brain can do, it's not all bad. Sometimes it can be good, but it is powerful. This milkshake study, I'm very excited to get your thoughts on it. It's a little bit controversial. I mean, we do talk about (laughs) scandalous stuff on here. But this was a milkshake study that was done kind of related to the placebo effect. So they gave, um, I think it was conducted two different times, and they gave participants of this study a 380-calorie milkshake. And they told some people that it was this 600-calorie indulgent milkshake. And then they told other people, it's 140 calories. It's a sensible, you know, great low-calorie milkshake. There is this thing, ghrelin, and it's like a gut peptide. It basically talks about the sensation of hunger in your stomach. And that was measured before people had the shake. I don't know, after they had the shake, whatever. I'm doing a TLDR of this. And basically, the participants drank this milkshake and then they measured that ghrelin in their stomach. And what they found was that there was a difference in the people who thought that they were having this fatty shake and then the people who thought that they were having this low-cow, low-fat shake. Now, I find that insane that just thinking that you're having something indulgent or not can actually change something in your stomach and in your body. So what did you think of this study and and do people write it off as, you know, a fluke or something reputable? Yeah, I think it's definitely still in the controversial phase of things in terms of, I think that there are components of it that are absolutely still being pursued now and should be. So in terms of the framing of the, the framing of a meal and what that means for how we sort of process it, I think that that's the harder part to get to. And it, and this is kind of this is where we'll come back to, I'm sure, with the placebo effect and sort of where it works and where it might not. And I think that when we talk about something like hunger and um, you know things that are really affected by so many different bodily systems, it's harder for me to wrap my head around just telling people the calorie difference and framing it as indulgent or not having this massive impact. Because I, then I think about things like eating disorders that really disrupt your normal e- like 
homeostatic hunger processes. Also, yeah, someone with an eating disorder can look at an apple and say, this is the most sugar-filled thing I've ever eaten. You know what I mean? So how someone defines something isn't really what it is. There's a bunch of stuff that goes into it. And even on the physiological level, there's differences for people. We're talking about Greenland. There's differences with um, anorexia, especially in terms of, I believe that people with anorexia will have a more pronounced um, anticipatory response to the idea of of this anticipated meal. So mm. even there, because I, when I was looking at that study, I was like, oh, the anticipation phase is so interesting because you're seeing a really dramatic increase in one group. I believe in the placebo group, you were seeing um, this sort of anticipation effect of that uh, shake. But it just makes me wonder what other components, especially because the sample size was so small. So this was, I mean, psychology has gone through a lot of like replication crisis discussion of making big claims from small samples. And I believe this was about 46 people. Um, And they do say that they, and the authors here are really wonderful scientists. So it's no comment on them. I think this more reflects the science of the time. And, you know, I also think it maybe reflects a little bit of how we don't consider eating disorders in mental health research in the same way. And they do talk about screening for psychiatric conditions and all of those sorts of things. But I I focus on the eating disorder question for this because it's so affected or their primary outcome is so affected by these features. And we know that a lot of people have undiagnosed eating disorders. So when you're looking at something Mm -hmm. like feeding behavior, it's it's really hard to know that your sample of largely college-age students wouldn't have some people potentially in one group that have a higher prevalence of an eating disorder than others. And that might just, just that alone might be throwing it off, not to mention just all of the interconnected systems going on. Definitely. Because yeah, I think the goal, I mean, you would know way more than I would for a lot of these studies is you want the most, I don't know, like average hashtag basic person to be in your study, right? So that way you have like a control group with no other variables influencing it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, and it's really hard to do. I mean, the amount of time and effort that it takes to do any attempt at a good study like this, I mean, it it is not because they wanted a small sample that they have a small sample. It's so much mm-hmm. time, money, and effort to do that. Um, so it's definitely... I think that they are, these scientists are continuing to investigate how like framing and expectations affect bodily responses. And I don't remember what year this took place, but I think we're understanding a lot better which systems we can really play on placebo effects to influence the best. I have been using ZocDoc for years and I am so excited that they are with the show this week. So let me tell you a bit about ZocDoc. I have been such a fan of theirs for years because I've moved all over the country. Uh, After I graduated college, I lived in Florida, I lived in California, I was in Chicago, I was in New York. And when you move to a new place and you need to see a doctor, whether it's a specialist or a primary care doctor, you really don't know what that first step is to take. And that is why I have always used ZocDoc. They are the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient reviewed, take your insurance and are available when you need them. And they treat almost every condition under the sun. So with ZocDoc, there is no more doctor roulette or having to pour through the internet and search questionable reviews. With ZocDoc, you have a trusted guide to connect you to your favorite doctor that you just haven't met yet. So you can go to ZocDoc.com 
slash fluently and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then you find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash fluently, ZocDoc.com slash fluently. Well, I hope the studies, you know, take place and advance rapidly because I would love to dig into a chocolate cake, but just like tell myself beforehand, this is so good for me (laughs) and just kind of drill that in and then not have any of this, I don't know, ghrelin. (laughs) Now, here's another question too. We talk about the mindset of placebo effects. This was very interesting. I think you sent me this study. The physical evidence of the placebo effect. So this was a study where they gave people allergic reactions and then they gave them a placebo. And do you pronounce this nocebo? Yeah. (laughs) Placebo and nocebo. I love it. And the, the healthcare person who was providing the cream was either super warm, welcoming, competent, or they were a combo of like low warmth, low competence, things like that. And the cream reduced the allergic responses more in the folks who had it provided by those warm, welcoming, empathetic uh, people. Now, I think that this is crazy because this just gets my brain running in a bunch of different directions. But the first question I have is, is this why you want a doctor with good bedside manner? Is it because that warm, welcoming healthcare provider that you work with, they know that placebo effect-wise, it can give you a greater result? Great question. I don't know how much it's actually trained in terms of, I think that medical training- Which under- by the way, the, the training needs to happen because yeah. how many doctors have you had who you were like, they want me out of their office immediately? Absolutely. And this study, I, I really like it because you know we think of like quote unquote soft skills and the things that we associate with women and then put women in different careers because we don't like value those skills. And I really like this study because it's, it's emphasizing how these more like human focused skills are so important for medical training and all of like our healthcare systems broadly. Um, It's really exciting as a social scientist to see these effects because I think a lot of interventions are playing on the benefit of having someone kind and caring, wanting you to do better. Like, I think when we talk about placebo effects, even, I wonder sometimes if part of it is just that you're getting something from a human who is maybe checking in on your day and like asking if you care or like asking things that indicate that you care about them. And I was thinking about that a lot in grad school when we were working with these people who had just lost their spouse, you know, we saw them four times over the course of a year. And many times they were just really appreciative that someone in their life was asking about the spouse that they lost, right? Because our friends and family might be really supportive early on, but, you know, six months, eight months, we don't know how to deal with grief well. And I think across a lot of different types of interventions, we might just be underestimating the impact of having, like, kind people vocalizing or showing any interest and care for us like that to me that can make such a huge difference especially if you're at a really low point like in antidepressant studies for example I I I just I really really hope we focus more on how we can leverage both placebo effects but also social support for healing as well yeah so many different things to talk about there one random thing that popped up for me is, um, do you ever watch ASMR videos or experience ASMR? Yeah, I've, seen, I've definitely watched them, yeah. That idea of a lot of these ASMR videos on YouTube are 
oddly enough, doctor check-ins, doctor examinations, personal care, personal attention, and it makes all of these people feel relaxed. And is it the audio sounds and the visuals, or is it just that notion of somebody looking after you and taking care of you and being very warm and welcoming? So I find that very interesting. And I'm assuming in these studies that you conducted, you guys weren't like a total asshole to the people coming in, right? You probably have to be very kind when you see them. So I would say absolutely. There's a lot of just like sensitivity training that goes into it. And then at the same time, we also do stress tests where some people are explicitly giving negative feedback to people to stress them out. So we have a combination of like, we, like our people who are working with the participants are very kind, very warm, but then we'll bring them into a room with strangers and absolutely stress them out for a limited amount of time to see what their stress responses are like. So mm. both yes and no. <laughs> Yeah. Interesting. Oh God, isn't that fascinating? I would have so much fun in a lab getting to like manipulate people like that. Now, the other question I have too, is that would this specific study and the other ones you've talked mm -hmm. about where that personal care and attention makes someone feel better or more receptive to these nocebo creams, is this proof that people's energy is out there, right? Is this, you talk about narcissists or sociopath or these energy vampires who latch onto an empath and just like suck them dry or these people where every time you hang out with them, you feel so good about yourself or this one coworker where every time you walk by them, you can't help but just get weird vibes. Does studies like this show that people just by their personality and who they are can negatively or positively impact your health? It's such a great question. And I haven't seen too much work that's specifically looking at sort of like who are the healthy and unhealthy people in our lives. And that's kind of outside of like more stigmatizing mental health and mental uh, illness related work or uh, personality disorder work. Because I think that that's where you might see a little bit more of like this type of person doesn't isn't as good for some people, right? But I think that leaning into sort of who is good for our, us individually, like as you were saying with that um, example of like you might see a dog and for some people you're really stressed and, some, and someone else totally not, right? It just goes back to like how our past experiences affect what we view as good and safe or threatening and dangerous. And so mm -hmm. I think too that there, there are so many qualities and experiences that we could have that make some people good or bad for us. So a part of it is recognizing like, who do we feel safe around? Who do we feel like that buzzy, excited feeling? Where do we get our energy from um, specifically? So there, there are definitely people that I think can't, I guess the, the category of people that I think are the most dangerous are probably just for me especially, are takers. So people who want to take more than they are willing to give, I think that that is a really dangerous dynamic as a woman who is a people pleaser and likes to like help people, right? So that's something that when, that I really lean towards being around people who, um, care more, a lot about like reciprocity in um, relationships, whether it's working relationships or in, in personal relationships as well. Yeah, and that's a great point, which by the way, I'm glad you mentioned that too about the stigma with personality disorders because that egg on my face for saying that, but I've heard so many people, especially with Amber Heard and Pete Davidson being like someone with BP BPD, you have to stay away from them. And it's just like, like, where are you getting off saying this? Just from some like a meme that you saw on the internet? 
But what is interesting too is I was listening to this video on um, everyone now is talking about attachment styles, right? The anxious attached versus the avoidant attached and how they're drawn to each other. And just like you said, with that example of the dog on the street, this video said at the beginning, the avoidant sees the anxiously attached and they love how easily they can express emotion and put it out there and not be afraid of it. And the attached person sees the avoidant and they go, oh my God, they're so stable and grounded. I absolutely love this energy. So they are drawn to each other at first, only to, you know, three, six months later, repel and have to work through problems that come up. So that is interesting that, yeah, every, every unique experience could have someone different. And I love the I love that you brought up attachment stuff. It, it was a huge part of my PhD, and I love thinking about like attachment related questions. And I and especially with relationships, like I think too about like what your relationship was like with your parents and how that sort of early caregiver um, care receiver relationship can kind of trickle into our future relationships too. Because part of it is like we know what this type of relationship is, so we can go for someone who's similar to a parent because we've been in that similar dynamic. And I think that there is a tendency just to want to sort of like not con- like conquer is the wrong word, but to like reclaim whatever that narrative of our childhood is. So uh, there's almost a, yes. a tendency. Have you heard yeah, that quote where they say you're attracted to people that remind you of your most difficult parents. Oh my gosh, I haven't heard that, but I've heard like ver- uh, varieties of it, and I think it's I think it's partially true, and I think it's a really interesting way to na- like think about how we navigate our romantic relationships and whether or not we can really find like what is healthy for us if we're stuck within this sort of um, system of going back to just what's familiar and comfortable with for us, which might not be what's best for us. Yeah. Yeah. Although it's funny whenever you hear of those mantras, because I think about it and I'm like, neither my mom or dad was a nerdy introverted guy who played chess online. So why am I attracted to this one type of person? So it's not always there, but but it is interesting. And that's cool that uh, you study it because some of these concepts that are talked about on TikTok, you don't know if they're you know, foo-foo stuff or actually grounded in research. And it looks like attachment theory is. Yeah, attachment theory, absolutely. And there's I mean, attachment theory is so relevant for so many different points of our lives. And we thought about it a lot with uh, after the death of a spouse, because we really think of the death of a spouse as sort of being, you've developed this relationship with someone who you know how when you're distressed, you regulate your distress through that person. You Your sleep patterns, your heart rate, like all of these physiological things are synced up with that person. And all of a sudden that is removed and you don't have that, we, t- we call it like co-regulation from that romantic partner anymore. So there's both the sort of grief element that I think attachment and understanding attachment styles can really help us sort of understand who might be at having a really tough time grieving, but there's also just the physiological withdrawal of losing that attachment figure. So attachment theory can help us think about sort of what are the different qualities of different groups of people, but also what broadly does it mean to have an attachment to another person and lose it? So whether it's through death or divorce or breakup um, or just long distance, right? There are some really cool 
really cool, like my absolute favorite type of studies are these airport separation studies where, which like you could do before 9-11, where you go and watch couples separating at the airport and then sort of have them fill out daily diaries after reporting on their sleep and things like that. And, you know, they find that people who are more anxiously attached have more trouble sleeping when they're away from their partner. So things like that that are so fascinating, Um, getting at those sort of shorter-term separations that can maybe help us understand longer-term separations like divorce or death. Oh, I love that. I I looked a lot, and I've always been interested in this topic, and I went through a breakup at the end of the summer, and I remember talking to my therapist about it, and there's some parts of a breakup where, yes, you want to use CBT therapy. You want to distort those cognitive distortions and get your thoughts screwed on straight, but then the other half of it really is just grief, like, what you going to (laughs) do? Like That person's gone, and you have to grieve them. You have to grieve the future and and all of that. And I'm really drawn to these ideas too of, like you said, breakups are one thing, the death of a spouse, two different things. Because in one, you're kind of grieving the future and the other, you're kind of grieving the past or once again, what could have been for the shorter term future. What Have you heard of that theory where they say um, girls after a breakup, I'm just throwing in timelines here, they're sad on month one on month two they're pretty sad on month three they're over it but guys are happy on month one and then on month two they start to get a little bit huh and then on month three they actually like miss that person more have you ever found any gender-based studies that you know say that men and women will deal with grief or sadness after love in different ways like is that theory true that's a great. I haven't ever I haven't ever heard that specific, but it really leads into a lot of there's really interesting work sort of on the on the grief side. I think we know men have a harder time and it's like not as socially acceptable to seek help, especially for like older bereaved men, right? So there's that piece of it, but then I think Another piece of it is we talk a lot about how after the death of a spouse, you know, there's the whole um, like broken heart effect or like widowhood effect um, where you have heart issues after the death of a spouse and not everyone, but a small percentage of people will even die in the few months after the death of a spouse. And And by the way, like, oh yeah, I have heard about that is so it affects your heart because I would also consider that placebo that you're so sad you die of heartbreak. Is it always the heart that's affected or do people just say that to sound more romantic? Great question. I think the like overall calling it the broken heart syndrome, totally gimmicky, but there is a lot of truth to it that it is cardiovascular related. Um, And part of that is because one of the most direct paths that we can get from sort of stress to poor health is like stress, a lot of negative emotion, build of, of inflammation, and inflammation is causally involved in a lot of cardiovascular disease-related mm-hmm. issues. So uh, the study my advisor was running is trying to understand if inflammation is really, if stress-induced inflammation is really part of what's driving that effect. Um, and it is cardiovascular-related, but what's interesting, there's a really solid study that shows that that effect is really strong for men. And part of that is because oftentimes women have been caregiving for men. So even if the men are the ones who you know, experience the death of their wife, for example, the women in that relationship might have been doing a lot of the medical work for that husband. Whereas Mm. sort of on gender norms, when women experience the death of their husband, more often they have more time to handle their own medical issues and actually potentially have a little bit better health sometimes after that death of a spouse. And it's not to say that that's not a hugely impactful event. It's definitely not to say that there's not, you know, poor health stuff for the women, but part of it is like who's doing the caretaking, who's doing all of the, where is the time and effort of medical attention going to too? 
Oh, absolutely. I could, and there's also all of those, I mean, this is only somewhat related, but all of those crazy studies too about, you know, who leaves their partner when they get sick with cancer, wives leaving their husbands, very low, but husbands leaving their wives is, I think, isn't it so high that now doctors will take women aside and say, hey, you might want to know the statistics say like, I don't know, 60% of men leave their wives after they get cancer, which is like insane. Yeah. And that reminds me too of, you know, with pregnancy, like I I just think about like leading cause of death for pregnant people is homicide. And when are you most likely to be cheated on when you're pregnant? So just (laughs) very frustrating. That (laughs) That combination of those two really gets me. (laughs) Right. It's like you get tons of discharge, hemorrhoids, swollen ankles. Could you also give me like a gun? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just insane that, I don't know. I, it, it's not surprising, I think. That's why it really pisses me off when Elon Musk is like, why aren't women having more children? I, I don't know. Maybe step into our stilettos for a little bit and think about it. There's a lot going on there. Yeah, provide some resources, any choice, any any options uh, to like save our, save our lives from you know medical complications as well as our partners who might not be happy we're pregnant. I have always been a huge advocate of taking vitamins and supplements, probably because about every week my mom texts the family group chat and tells everyone to take a vitamin D because we are all very, very low in it. And what I love about Ritual and I want to tell you about is that they are making multivitamins, supplements, and more that combine all of these great things that we all need. So So many women today, over 97% of them from ages 19 to 50, are not getting enough vitamin D in their diet, and they're also not getting their recommended daily intake of key omega-3s. So Rituals Essentials for Women 18+, plus. they have a multivitamin. It combines everything you need in one. And they also just released Symbiotic Plus. Now, this is a gut health supplement, and it's got three great things in it. Prebiotics, probiotics, and postbiotics all in one minty capsule, which is just great. You get everything all in one. So right now, if you want to give them a shot, I take both the multivitamin and Symbiotic Plus. They are going to be offering my listeners 10% off of your first three months. You can visit ritual.com slash fluently and turn healthy habits into a ritual. That's 10% off at ritual.com slash fluently. Well, getting back to the placebo effect here, this one really shocked me when we were emailing about this. Um, You said, quote, I've been especially interested in the research around how placebos are more successful the more medicalized they are, such as surgery as a stronger placebo than a pill. That was something I had never heard of because I was just living in la-la land thinking about the birth control pill. I was like, this is the only (laughs) placebo effect that exists. What kind of placebo effect is worked into surgery and what's happened there? Yeah, I so this uh, comes from, I think there was a Hidden Brain episode a few years ago that just floored me. And this was probably the first time I was really like, wow, placebo effects are wild and just under, we don't understand them. So this happened, this came about because a doctor sort of moved, I believe he actually moved to Houston and was seeing that the people in his clinic were doing this kind of knee surgery a lot more than he had ever been doing. And he realized that there were, there was a lot of difference across the country, like just regional differences in who was doing the surgery and not. And it wasn't clearly tied to whether patients were doing better or not. And surgeries just don't have to go through the same procedures as things like um, pills. We don't have 
uh, placebo-controlled surgery trials in the same way that we do for, you know, that's the barrier for any antidepressant, any of these drugs. They need to be better than placebo, and a lot of times they need to be better than whatever the existing pill is. But for surgery, they've just been doing this surgery for a long time, thinking it's doing something. And they ended up comparing two different types of this. It was for osteoarthritis of the knee, and they compared two different types of orthoscopic surgery with um, a placebo surgery, where... I mean, and I love, like, the example Does of what the placebo mean, like, surgery yeah, like is. You cut someone open, and then you just twiddle your thumbs for, like, a half hour? Yeah, they made all the same sounds. They, they like, <laughs> moved around the operating room in the same way that they would have, right? Because they're trying to control the environment to make it the exact same and make people think Can that I they've something? done something. Yeah, please. Can I be hired as a placebo surgeon? Because I could <laughs> fake it for an hour, you know? Do they get the same pay? Oh, my gosh, right? If you could be, like, placebo... <laughs> Placebo surgeon would really be the gig. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So they do, so get back to it. They do this placebo surgery. Yeah. And they don't end up finding any benefit to actually going in and messing around with people's knees compared to just opening them up and, you know, giving them it. So, so I should back up to sort of like, I want to get into how placebos work and sort of the main, um, mechanisms that we're playing on, which are, um, expectation effects. So like, thinking about uh, how we appraise a situation as either being helpful or not. So we, in a lot of placebo trials, they'll tell you that this thing is going to be, or excuse me, in a lot of studies where we're really trying to isolate and target the placebo itself versus antidepressant studies where you're just trying to prove above and beyond. So when you're trying to really look at the placebo effect, you know, we'll tell people things like this should reduce your distress. So you give them that expectation that the thing that they're about to have or whatever you're giving them is going to actually reduce their distress, make them feel better, right? So that's playing on the expectation piece. And then we also play on um, learned association. So just conditioning, like thinking of uh, Pavlov's dog, right? So we just want to pair a stimulus with a response. And so we can get at really cool approaches with both of these methods. And I think that it's helpful to, when we're talking about these different studies, like think about which piece is being played on. Because for can something- Can just uh, yeah. as this, as this stupid person in the room here? So the first part of it is saying, hey, this pill is really going to change your life. You're going to feel so much better. But then that's only 50%. The other 50% is you actually have to give the person the pill. So if you gave them the pill without hyping it up, nothing as much would happen. And if you hyped someone up without giving them the pill, it wouldn't take it. You have to have both together. It's giving you, yeah. So the expectation piece is giving you that you both have, you have these expectations, right? And then you yeah. pair it, you pair something like, um, I'm trying to think of a good example, But you pair a response. So, for example, you might give someone a shock, right? You might give someone a shock and give them a a low-dose pill and say, if this is at an 8, how does this feel? And they'll say, oh, that hurt. And then you'll say, okay, I'm going to give you a high dose of this, and we're going to give you the same level of uh, shock, right? So then you actually give them a lower shock. And then they start pairing that that pill was associated with less pain. And so potentially mm. what you can do is then like ramp it up from going from like two, three, four, and maybe you can get them up to like a five, six, seven and th- feeling like it's less pain because you're, you're pairing that sort of initial piece of taking a pill with a lower yeah. pain experience than earlier on. And our bodies respond really well to conditioning. So there's 
really wild work from like the 80s showing um, that in rats you can condition immune responses. And I think that's where a lot of the placebo work is people get really excited about the idea of conditioning immune responses. And, you know, that's a much more difficult thing to do in humans. And it's not, it's not done in the same way, but a lot of the placebo work is playing on how we can pair various stimuli with various responses and hopefully really reduce people's experience of pain or distress by doing that. Wow. Now, this is a little bit off topic and mm-hmm. sexual, but have you heard of how people have a higher pain tolerance when they're aroused? Basically, like if you just spanked someone while they're cooking dinner, they might be like, what the hell were you doing? But if they're turned on and you spank them, it's not going to hurt as much. And people have done these studies where nipple clamps, biting, all of this stuff, when you're turned on, your body can withstand more pain and not find it as painful. The same way that like if you're wrestling someone and they tickle you, you're not going to giggle and find it ticklish because like your body is so charged up with something. Yeah, I haven't thought about that like specific sexual example, but it, it makes sense with the idea of like what when you're in this high arousal state, what your body is prioritizing and it's not experiencing pain. It's it's moving forward. You know, it, it's like the same thing of if if you're having this like a big adrenaline rush, right? Your your body's just mobilizing to do certain things and it probably reproductive related is like the the main like thing we would like evolutionary people would argue that your body would be mobilized to do so and to associate with sort of less pain too. I see. I hope they redo the milkshake study and they're like, now some of you guys are horny drinking a 600, 600 calorie milkshake and some of you guys are watching a documentary. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to um, introduce placebos to too hot to handle? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I think of that for anything. I remember the first time I ever made out with someone was with my boyfriend in high school in the in his basement. And before we did it, he leaned in and, to use your terminology, set the expectations. He said, I'm probably going to be really bad at this. And oh. then we made out. And he was really bad at it. But maybe if he had placeboed me and said, I am a, I am a Casanova, I would have went, wow, that was like the best kiss of my life. Yeah, how would you know? <laughs> is the season. It is the season for sales and it is the season to try new things. I want to talk to you about America's best value meal kit. I am talking about every plate. Every plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping. And the reason I love using meal kits, I live alone. And sometimes you want to cook a fun recipe, maybe something you saw online. You don't want to buy an entire bottle of mustard just to use a squirt of it in your recipe. And what every plate does is that they will send you meal kits direct to your doorstep. You get to pick what type of recipe you want. They have these um, changing recipes that you can choose 21 different ones every week. And they will send you the right proportions of ingredients, exactly what you need for your recipe. So if you want to try every plate, you can get your first box for just $1.49 per meal, going to everyplate.com and you enter the code fluently149. So once again, you go to everyplate.com and enter code fluently149. So that is a $110 value that you will be getting there. So real quick, back to the placebos and surgery. So they did this on the knee and they found same results 
if we actually work on this knee or if we don't. And, and this was reported by the patients afterwards. They were like, oh, that surgery was great. I feel so much better. Yes, exactly. So they all reported, they, across groups, they reported the same amount of pain reduction in the placebo surgery versus in the other two sort of more like active surgeries that we would have traditionally thought. Yeah, which like, is Were people wild. mad? Were they like, I want my money back? Did they know that this was going on? Did they feel cheated by, I, I don't know. Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not sure what the response was to this study. I would imagine a lot of people across the country who got those surgeries would be a little bit frustrated. I think it points to um, like errors in our scientific process uh, when we do surgeries without knowing if it's necessary, <laughs> for example. Yes. Um, but you're really getting at sort of the uh, uh, the main problem that a lot of people are trying to get at with placebos, which is that there is an element of deception with a lot of placebo work. And so there's really promising work around like non-deceptive placebos where you tell someone how placebos work and tell them that this is going to work because we're going to tell you, we're telling you about these expectations. You don't even have to hold these expectations, but we're going to tell you this. And by, you know, just trying to get around the ethical issues, especially for something like you know, when we talk about antidepressants and placebos, there there is good evidence that placebos can be as effective as antidepressants for on the mild, more like mild to moderate um, end of depression. But that's really dangerous to say like antidepressants don't like quote unquote don't do anything. I don't think that's a good takeaway. But I think that there's a really big opportunity for figuring out how do you do these placebos in a really ethical way that we can like actually leverage the power of them because antidepressants are, do have side effects. And I don't know about you, but when I, the main barrier for me with antidepressants was just what it did to like my sex life. And I, I just remember feeling I am so down and I cannot imagine giving up like this one joy that I, like, this is where I am getting my pleasure from. And so why would I want to take this antidepressant that like I lose my ability to have this pleasure in this way? So you know, there's really good reason to look into placebos and the promise for antidepressants or for, you know, using in depression. But it's so tricky when you're saying we're going to deceive people who are at the height of their distress. So this cool work trying to play on expectations in a way that is disclosing what they're doing with people. Yeah. And I mean, isn't that enough to just make you want to sit down and scratch your head. Like the fact that if you tell someone it's a placebo, it still works. Like growing up, I was like, the placebo only works because we're tricking people. No, it doesn't. Like that's insane. Now, speaking about depression and the placebo effect, I've seen a lot of knuckleheads online talking about this where they're very anti, they're anti antidepressants. <laughs> they're pro-depression. <laughs> um, and they're basically saying, oh, so many studies have been done. These antidepressants are basically just all placebo effect, all placebo effect. What I say is if it's placebo effect, fantastic. It's working because there have been some placebo effect studies. I think this happened with asthma or I don't know, something like that, something in the lungs where a group of people were given the placebo pill or something and their symptoms improved. But when they actually looked and did scans of their body, the problem still persisted. But depression, mental illness, it's one of those horrible illnesses where you can't see it. You can't show it in a blood test and prove it to anyone, but it does exist. So if the placebo effect fixes it, wouldn't you say that it's, it's 100% fixed then since it is technically in your mind? 
Absolutely. And I think to underestimate the, that goes back to underestimating the value of like asking people how stressed or how depressed they are and just taking that at face value and saying, this is what matters. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I think that for, I'm totally with you. Like, I think that a lot of times, which is why I'm even hesitant to talk about it, honestly, is that it, it is dangerous the way people talk about antidepressants and placebos and dismiss use that to dismiss antidepressants because they are absolutely very effective for, especially when we think about like different subtypes of depression. It's just difficult to say any one pill or any few types of pills are going to work for every type and severity of depression. So I think having this scaffolding of a lot of different options is going to really help us. And there might be some types of depression that are more responsive to placebos than others. There's a lot of mm. question around sort of just where depression comes from and one of our lectures in grad school was from uh, Dr. Robert Dancer, who does a lot with how inflammation can cause depression. So that's there's a subtype of depression that can be caused by bodily inflammation accumulating, right? So I love that kind oh, of work. So like not situational or brain chemistry, but it could be caused from your body itself. Yeah, absolutely. So there's this bidirectional sort of loop between depression and inflammation. So people who have severe depression will have higher inflammation. And so there's always been sort of this question of which one comes first. And there's definitely not a clear answer, but there's good evidence that for some people, the inflammation comes first. And you can see, and it's really tough to tease apart, right? Because a lot of times when you have really elevated levels of inflammation, for example, it might be because you have a chronic illness. So it's hard to tell, is this depression because you have this chronic illness and that's increasing your inflammation, or is it because you have this chronic illness that you need to manage? So teasing those questions apart is really difficult, but I think it's helpful to think about all of the different subtypes of depression when we see results uh, like this with placebos, because placebos might be really effective for certain types of depression. And at the same time, I definitely wouldn't want to say, like, we should use placebos for every type of depression, going back to what you're saying, because, you know, and we have good evidence for antidepressants. And even if they do have mm-hmm. side effects, those side effects are much better than the experience of being severely depressed for most people. God, well, now I'm thinking about placebos for anxiety. I'm like, do they have a placebo for yeast infections? I could always use one of those at least once a year. Placebo for everything. Huh. Okay, well, just to wrap things up here, which, by the way, you have sent me on such a rabbit hole. You are a wealth of information, and you speak so knowledgeably about this stuff because I'm I always find myself so interested in these larger topics but whenever I want to google it it's a bunch of words that it's hard for me to get through a paragraph because I have to define each word with you know nine different syllables in it so thank you for walking us through this now what I want to end on here is this concept of manifestation law of attraction placebo effect with the work that you've done do you believe in law of attraction, manifestation, visualization, and how do you use it in your life if you use it at all? Or are you a non-believer? I'll say I am uh, cautiously in the middle of that, which is to say my password has been my goal for a long time. Like I change my password to be like what my goal is. And it's never that uh, that exact thing happens, but I love having the reminder like at the front of my mind, right? Uh, So like in in, uh, college, I think I had a password that was like med school 4.0, which is obnoxious and horrible (laughs) to have to think about many times. I did not go to med school. I did not have a 4.0, but you know, you get, it gets you a step closer. (laughs) That's am- I'm like, mine would be like, to these 420. You know? I'm like, come on, come on, come on. 
That's such, I've never heard of that before. I've heard of vision boards, but your password as your goal, that's fantastic. Not to mention if anyone has to hack you, they have to be the most creative, really put themselves in your type of shoes thing. Yeah. So I, I mean, I definitely buy into it for pieces of my own life. I think it, I think it, in psychology, we would think of it as like the self-fulfilling prophecy of like, if you think you're going to be bad at something and you are continuously like moving through, like practicing something, thinking you're going to be bad at it, you're probably not going to be as good as if you are moving through that with confidence and learning with confidence, right? So I think that it comes back to self-fulfilling prophecy ideas. And then my only like hesitation with it all is, is just when there are just these giant systemic factors that can really limit a lot of people's access to opportunity. So I'm, I'm into manifestation as a, as a concept broadly, but then I also step back and I'm like, you know, at, at, a, at some end, um, you know, income inequality and like uh, how, like how much social mobility do you have? Um, so I think it, you know, I, I buy it, but I also like to recognize like the limitations of it. <laughs> Yeah, it's like me uh, trying to like go up against the healthcare system with like my tiny vision board that I made out of a magazine. It's like, ooh, don't know how strong <laughs> this is. But yeah, will they believe my pain? <laughs> I know exactly. <laughs> Manifesting that my pain is hurt. <laughs> Isn't that wild? Okay, so tell us a little bit just before we wrap up here. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on now and um, future things that you could kind of like see in this industry that we might be on the lookout for in the next five, 10 years, whether it has to do with those issues of aging that you're talking about, Mm -hmm. which by the way, that conference sounds so interesting, a conference on aging, or if it has to do with placebo effect, manifestation, anything. Yeah. On the placebo effect side, I know that there's a lot of excitement around non-deceptive placebos. So placebo is where you tell people this is a placebo and this will still possibly work for you. Um, that, that's definitely an area that's growing, really rapidly. Um, For me personally, on the aging front, I'm really interested in stress reactivity and just the idea of like, you know, how we respond to one stressor is really helpful to understand how we might be responding multiple times per day, right? We experience a lot of stress in our lives. So I like to capture how people are responding to, you know, a stressor in the lab and then try to understand how that might reflect how they move through their world and, you know, how, how quickly, how reactive we are. And then on the intervention front, thinking about how we can sort of promote stress resilience so that we can face those stressors and appraise them as something that we can handle more easily. So things like mindfulness interventions are really popular here at UCSF. People are really interested in you know, just slowing us down so that we can let our bodies have the moment to respond, take that deep breath before we actually, you know, flip out, flip into action, um, which I tend to, you know, you get something you want to go, but just being able to take, take a breath, assess if this is like what really serves you in this moment. I think there's a lot of excitement for interventions that address how we react to stress generally, because it's such a huge part of our lives. Um, Just, experiencing and hopefully minimizing our reactivity to those stressors and just understanding like what does stress mean for how we age you know there there is good stress right like exercise is stress but we know that's good for us so just better delineating where the good and the bad line is and how we can sort of push people from being like bigger stronger reactors to people who are a little bit less reactive can take a deep breath and move through stressful situations with a little bit more calm and, and confidence that things will be okay, that we have the resources to handle them. 
God, that's so beautiful. And it's true. It's so true what you said about breaths, too. Like, we do not think about breathing. I follow this uh, chick on Instagram who's all about breath work. If I sit and for a minute I just focus on deep breaths, I feel like I'm on drugs. I'm like, why don't I do this more? But instead, we just pick up our phone and, like, go on TikTok rather than focusing on breathing or any of these things that are legitimately good for us. So... Wow. Dr. Ryan Lynn Brown, thank you so much for joining us. This is fascinating. And please keep me and all of us here. I would say floozies, but today we are the forward thinkers. <laughs> keep us posted with what you do and all of this research. I'd love to have you back in like a year and we could talk about like stress and aging or something like that because nobody can deny that this work is so incredibly important. And I'm so happy that you're doing it because God knows we could all stand to be a little bit stressed. Well, thank you so much, Shannon. Less stressed, yeah. And and I'll just say the last thing that sort of I've been doing in my life um, around stress is, you know, we talk a lot about avoidance and how uh, like avoiding things can maybe make us just a little bit more afraid of those things. So I've been kind of leaning more into whatever the thing is that I'm afraid of or like kind of threatens my ego or like there's that fear of failure, just going for it and you know actually letting there be evidence that you know prove to me that I'll fail at it. So that that's kind of my uh, little like stress resilience intervention for listeners. If you want to just sort of approach and like go towards those things that are a little bit more scary, I think that I've been finding that that really expands my world of possibilities. Yes. And you are a freaking expert. So this is like true. And also what I am going to do is right after this, I dare you guys to hack me. I'm changing my password to <laughs> hashtag number one on the top of the Spotify charts. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Ryan. We will talk soon. Thanks, Shannon. All right. A round of applause for Dr. Ryan Lynn Brown. What a wealth of information and knowledge. And she's so well-spoken. Even when we were emailing, I was just going, the way that you talk about these concepts, because I'm so interested in science and math and philosophy and all of these big topics, but I hate looking it up online because I have to Google so many words I don't know. And I feel stupid after the first paragraph and there isn't anyone that I can bounce these topics off of. So I just had a blast with Ryan being able to talk about a highbrow conversation like you're just having a happy hour or a catch up with a friend. It's one of my joys in life. So huge thank you to Ryan. If you are interested in more content this week or prior weeks, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash fluentlyforward. We have done some cool episodes on there recently. We did one about Miley Cyrus because she is just so fantastic. Every New Year's Eve, I go, what the heck is Miley up to? We did one with my friend Bridget talking about celebrity sex addicts and porn addicts. And of course, a host of other topics on there as well. So head on over if you want more content. And if not, I will see you next week for another episode of Fluently Forward. Bye, guys.